Let's pray. God, we come now to open Your Word. And we thank You, O Father, that You have written down everything needed for our instruction. Now, Lord, we ask now that Your Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts and our minds to be able to understand to be able to see the truth of Your Word, O God. And and Father, we pray that as we come this morning, and as You present to us one of Your people who who isn't the best example, Father, that we we see how we all fall short of Your glory. We thank You that You did send that one who did follow Your example, uh, follow Your law perfectly. And He is our example. He is our Lord that is Christ. Oh Lord, for the sake of Christ, bless your word this morning. As your word is proclaimed, may it not return to you void. And we ask that you would save your elect and you would further sanctify your saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can, remain standing and turn in your copies of God's word with me to 1 Samuel. 27. 1 Samuel 27, we'll begin reading at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 2. Of chapter 28. Hear now the word of God. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is God speaking to us. So let us pay close attention. Then David said in his heart. Now I shall perish one day. By the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me. Than that I should escape. The land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair. Of seeking me any longer. Within the borders of Israel. And I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over. He and the 600 men who were with him. To Achish the son of Maok. King of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men. Every man with his household. And David with his two wives. Ahanoam of Jezreel. And Abigail of Carmel. Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old. As far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. But would take away the sheep, the oxen, the camels or the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back 
to Akish. When Akish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say against the Nagib of Judah or against the Nagib of the Jeremalites or against the Nagib of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom. All the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Last Sunday morning, we looked at 1 Samuel 26, and we saw David again sparing Saul's life. Once again, the faith of David was tested. He had a second opportunity to kill Saul, the one who was seeking to kill him. We saw as well David's patience in faith, how he had become more and more patient, patient and waiting upon the Lord. His encouragement in the faith. Knowing that Saul and his power was gone. And finally, David's hope and faith. And, and David's hope and faith is the same as ours. It is Christ. And so over the last three chapters, with each of the, the episodes we've looked at, we have seen David grow. Grow in his faith. Grow in his patience. Waiting upon the promises of God. And then we come to our text this morning. Now, if you look back for a moment at verse 19 of 26, we read this. Now, last week we read, Now, therefore, let my Lord the King hear the words of His servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may He accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I shall have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Now, what did David say there? Well, he is saying that he is considering a forced exile. Now, we shouldn't be surprised to see David heading to Gath again. And we really can't totally blame him for doing this because David is being hunted by Saul. He's being trapped by Saul. He's being attacked by Saul. He finds no peace. We see David making his thrilling escapes and executing daring escapades and all of it. And now we come to our text this morning and, and we see this text and as we finish with verse 2 of chapter 28, you may say, well, where is the rest of the story? And you're not wrong in saying that because the writer doesn't give us the rest of the story. It ends quite abruptly. He leaves us hanging. We have then a piece of a story. 
It's a piece of a story that stands by itself. And so we, we consider that here uh, this morning. And, and also it is a text that does not mention God. The name of God is not mentioned. God doesn't give us his thoughts on what David is doing here. The, the writer doesn't give us any moral commentary on what David is doing. The text is sympathetic to David, but at the same time, it presents to us that David is in the wrong. Now, why is David in the wrong? Well, we'll see this morning, and we know one reason why he is in the wrong, and it's what we have seen over the last three chapters, especially in chapters 24 and 26, where God showed David very clearly that the protection of Saul was gone and that the king is exposed and helpless. But even though God showed David that, what does he do? He runs. And he runs to the Philistines. Our text is divided up into four parts this morning. First of all, we see David's plan. In verses 1 through 4, in verse 1, David is convinced that his only security rests west in Philistia. David says in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now, David is convinced that Saul is going to kill him. Now, again, what do we see? We see a lack of faith on David's part. God has promised him that Saul really is not going to touch a hair of his head and he will, he will become king. But again, what do we see? We see fear creeping in upon David. Now, fear is a very real emotion. There are times we are fearful. There, there are times we fear the unknown. There are times we fear things that are happening around us. But again, let me remind us that often in the Bible, what does God say to us? Do not fear. Be not afraid. Now why is that? Well, if God is on our side, who can be against us? If Christ is our Lord and Savior, then what are we to be afraid of? Again, the worst that the world can do is take our life. That's it. However, this lack of, of faith on David's part leads him to, to seek security in a pagan land. Israel was a land of promise, was it not? The land that God gave to His people, the land that David would very soon rule over as king, but now he decides to go to the Gentiles and seek safety there. He believes that if he goes to the land of the pagans, that Saul will no longer seek his life. And so he goes again to Gath. Now if you turn back for a moment, this isn't the first time that David went to Gath. In, in 1 Samuel 21, in verses 10 through 15, David also went to Gath, and he went to Achish, the, the king of Gath. 
And at that moment, what did David do? Well, he changed his behavior. He acted like a madman. He was foaming at the mouth. So that the Philistines wouldn't kill him. Or take him prisoner. So now he again seeks refuge in the land of Gath. And so David dwelling in the land of the Philistines, seeking comfort amongst unbelievers rather than trusting God and keeping him safe in Israel. Now, did David's plan work? Verse 4 tells us, doesn't it? It was told Saul that David had fled to Gath and he no longer sought him. But again, here, David's faith is weak. It's not what it should be. Now, that, that reminds us of something, doesn't it? That, that our faith is not always going to be what it should be. Sometimes our faith is very strong. Sometimes it's weak. Sometimes the circumstances of life may shake us in our faith to its very core. And we even doubt whether or not we have true salvation in Christ. But we understand this, that if we are in Christ, that God has given us saving faith, and no matter what happens, God will keep His Word. But then there's a second thing we see, and that, that is David's town. So David goes to the king, verse 5, and he says, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city? Now this also is a part of David's plan. We'll see that in a moment. Not only was he seeking refuge amongst the Philistines, but he also had a plan in mind to deal with the enemies of God's people. And so he asked for a, a nice country town. Now, did the king grant it? Yes, he did. Akish gave to David Ziklag, and verse 6 tells us, Now, therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, why is that important? Why, why do we have that there? Well, you see, Israel here is recovering a part of their ancient right. Ziklag was in the lot of the tribe of Judah. And afterwards, out of that lot was assigned with some other cities to Simeon. But why do we find a pagan king living there? Well, more than likely, it was the fact that it was never subdued. What did God say to Joshua and to the Israelites when they took the promised land? Do you remember? Annihilate, eliminate everyone. They were under the ban. They were under the wrath and judgment of God. And Joshua and the army of Israel were to annihilate all of those in the land. And they didn't do it. That may have been a part of that. Or it may have been that the Philistines had some struggle with Israel and made themselves masters of of this city, but now David gains it back and it is given back to them. And it is bordering upon Israel. And so here David has some freedom in addition to security. In verse 7, we read that David lived in 
the country of the Philistines a year and four months. Now think of that, a year and four months outside of Israel. A year and four months outside of the land of promise. A year and four months outside of where the one true God was worshipped. You may say, well, God can be worshipped everywhere. Yes, He can. And isn't that what Jesus told the, the Samaritan woman in John 4, that He can be worshipped everywhere, not on one mountain or the other. But at this moment in redemptive history, God was worshipped in Israel. And David sought comforts outside of Israel. Now the text doesn't tell us whether David worshipped the Lord there with his men and his families gathered with him or if he went without worship for this, for this amount of time. But one thing we do know is that David was not able to worship the Lord in the land that the Lord had given to Israel. He is an exile from the promised land. He is living among the idolatrous Philistines. Now David was safe physically. His plan worked. Saul was not seeking his life for this year and four months. He had some peace. His family had some peace. But he put himself into danger spiritually. And that's what happens when, when we... When we fail to come and worship God, we put ourselves in danger spiritually. Or, or if we neglect the worship of God for an extended period of time, we are putting our, ourselves in danger spiritually. And this is where we, we find David. But then third of all, we, we find in here of David's practice. In verses 8 and 9, what do we find David doing? He is going on raids. He's going on raids, much like the Philistines would go and raid Israel. But notice who he raided. The Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, as far as sure to, to the land of Egypt. And so from Ziklag, David could attack Israel's enemies. And what was he doing? He was helping Israel. He was also doing that which Israel had not done previously. Again, these pagan people, they were still under the judgment and the ban of God. And so David goes out, and while he is allegedly attacking Israel, he convinces Achish that he is on his side. But David would go and he would strike these lands. He would leave neither man nor woman alive. He, he would take away the sheep and the oxen and the donkeys and the camels and the and the. Uh, and the garments, and he would come back to Akish, and Akish would ask him, well, where, where have you been? Or where did you raid today? And David would make it seem like he was raiding against Israel. Now, we might acquit David of injustice and, and cruelty here. You know, our, we, are, we are very sensitive folks. We don't know history. We don't look at history. We don't see that this earth is one of barbarism from 
the time of the fall and will be till Christ comes. But we, we, we might excuse and acquit David of injustice and cruelty. Why? Because those people whom he was attacking, they were, they were cut off and they were doomed to destruction. He was finishing the job, so to speak. The job that was not finished by Joshua and the armies of Israel. The Amalekites were to be all cut off. The, the Geshurites and the Gerzites, they were branches of the, the Amalekites. And do you remember back, what happened to Saul when he spared the Amalekites? Do you remember what, what happened? He was rejected for sparing them. He spared the king of the Amalekites. And then Samuel had to come and he, he finished the job. Because all the Amalekites were under the judgment of God. And so as David earned the trust of the king, as he told him where he was raiding, he, he would cut off all men and women so that no one could come back and say, well, David did this to us. So with each raid, each time he went out, he was winning the, the trust of the king. Verse 12, And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. The king thought, I have gained, I have gained a warrior. I have gained a small army that will do my bidding. And so forth, this brings us to David's Dilemma. Because in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28, what do we find? Well, the Philistines, they are about to go to war against Israel. Verse 1, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Now to do this would lead David to do what? To fight Against his people. To fight against the very people he will one day rule. Again, David knows he is to be king of Israel. David knows that Saul will not be king much longer. And he will come and he will take the throne as he awaits the promises of God. And so what is David to do? This is the dilemma that he is in. And so in verse 2, David agrees... To go. Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, as David agrees to go, he keeps himself free from a promise to serve the king, and yet he keeps up his expectation of it. He says, I will go. The king says, You'll be my bodyguard. Obviously, David probably agreed to that, even though the text is silent. But David's decision has led him to a point where he is risking his kingship over Israel. David's rhetoric would never turn aside the charge. He had loved Philistia and stabbed Israel in the back. And so what are we to make? Well, one, one commentator said this, we, mu we must avoid cheap shots at David when he was in such straits. 
Yet we must not ignore the import of the summary, which we might summarize as the will of God for us includes more than escaping from Saul, but the peril from Saul may not be so nasty or so damaging in the long run as being dubbed a traitor. And so again, there's a lack of faith on David's part. Now what application can we make? Well, that brings us naturally to our first application. Is, and it is this, a lack of faith will lead us to dilemmas much like David faced. And so what will we do? What, what are we going to do when we are faced with such dilemmas? Now, we might say in this case, well, all, fair, all is fair in love and war, right? This seems to be David's thinking. However, it seems that David was more afraid of Saul than he trusted in the promises of God. Again, go back to verse 1 of our text. David said in his heart, I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. That is, that is fear. That is a lack of faith that David has. And this is where the promise or the problem lies. We are not to be more afraid of our enemies than we are to trust in the promises of God. Again, as you've heard me say several times throughout this, as we see David wavering, we see his faith shaken, we see fear taking hold of him, we, we are to replace fear with faith. Now second, we, we may be angry with David at this point. For the last few chapters, we, we've seen David grow, right? We have seen him Increase in his faith and his understanding of the promises of God to him. Um, and, and it seems like he's learning, isn't it? It seems like he's growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he comes and he disappoints us. Have you ever been disappointed by one of God's people? We see God is doing something in this text. Even though God is not mentioned. Even though we, we do not know what, what God is thinking in, in this regard as far as telling us how He views these things, what He is doing is this. He is correcting our hero worship. The text tells us that this chosen anointed servant is made of the same stuff as all of the Lord's people. And we do that, don't we? We elevate certain ministers or preachers on high and then they disappoint us. Never elevate me. I'm going to disappoint you. And I know I have. And it's going to happen again. Because I'm a sinner like you are. We elevate certain people and, and we forget, you know, those people are sinners. Saved by grace as we are saved by grace. But at the same time, we are then not to throw out God's kingdom because not only its subjects, but even its premier servants are sinners. A lot of times we do that. Someone disappoints us greatly. And we say, you know what, I don't want to be a part of the church anymore. I've been hurt too much by the church. You're going to be hurt in the church. 
We're sinners. We hurt one another. Hopefully we reconcile with one another and we make things right. It's going to happen time and time and time again, just like it happens in our families. It's going to happen in our church family. But we're not to throw out the church. We're not to to throw out God's kingdom. The text before us this morning will not allow us to view Saul with only contempt and say nothing but admiration for David. The text before us resists every attempt to make David the mirror of all virtue. And so as you're disappointed in your heroes, know they are sinners. A few years ago, Charles Barkley said that Parents should never let their children's heroes be athletes. And he's right. But at the same time, we need to understand even those who seem to be the greatest in the kingdom of God will disappoint us. And then finally, as we long and wallow, as long as we wallow in some idea of Uh, of human worthiness. We will never understand the Bible. We will never tremble before God and we will never delight in God. Now what am I saying? I'm saying this, we must understand grace. Christian, God did not save you because you're worthy. God did not save you because He saw you doing great things. For the kingdom. He saved you so that you would do great things in the kingdom. He saved you by His grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, so that no one should boast. You know, our problem is our boasting, isn't it? Whether we are boasting in, in some hero of the faith and who, 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 who can do no wrong in our eyes, but then they do and they disappoint us, or whether we're boasting in our own worthiness, oh Lord, you just had to save me because I'm such a great person. If we do that, we don't understand grace. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by what we have done. And where do we ultimately see this grace? It is seen ultimately at Calvary, isn't it? It is seen at the cross. There is Jesus dying. Jesus is the perfect anointed of the Lord. Jesus never disappoints us. Jesus has never sinned. And what is He doing at the cross? He's dying for the sins of His unworthy people. He's dying for our sins. And we are not worthy to be saved, but Christ is worthy to die and to save the unworthy. And so you get nothing else today, get that. That in this, in this text that does not mention God, that does not name God, that we, find no, that we, not, we don't find the name of God in it, 
it teaches us something about grace. It teaches us not to, to elevate people on a pedestal because it's going to be knocked down out from under them. And it reminds us that we are all unworthy because we're sinners. But God has made us worthy through Christ. We are worthy through the finished work of Christ. And because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. In order to understand salvation, we must understand that we are not worthy to be saved by God. Do you understand that this morning? God did not have to save any one of us. He definitely didn't have to save me. I've done enough in my life to be cast into hell a thousand times over. But He has saved His people by grace to display His glory. And as we come to the table this morning, we must come recognizing that we are not worthy to come to this table. We're not worthy to come in our own strength. We're not worthy to come in our own righteousness, for we have none. We are only worthy to come to this table through the righteousness of Jesus. And we see the death of Christ on our behalf. Can you say this morning that Christ's death is for you? If so, you come to this table rejoicing. But if not, then you come to Christ. And you fall at His feet. And you pray as you turn from your sin, Lord Jesus, save me a sinner. And if you do that in faith, you'll be saved. You'll be saved by the one who is worthy of all our admiration and worship. The Lord Jesus Christ. May God add his blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word. No Lord, help us to see even how you Show us the sins of your people to encourage us in our wall and to increase our faith. And Father, as we come now to your table, may we come in faith. May we come trusting solely in Jesus. And O oh Lord, if there are any here this morning that are apart from you, for they have not faith in Christ, we ask that by your grace and power, you would save them and bring them to Jesus. And we pray this in His name. Amen.